This week, we talk to an established player in digital learning who finds herself an emerging entrepreneur again. Plus, we catch up with the accomplishments of some other women who are making a splash. Hi, I'm Karen Unland. And I'm Faiza Ramji, and this is Bloom, the podcast about innovation in Edmonton. Well, welcome back, Faiza. A little birdie called the internet tells me that you're in Sheffield, England. What? What's in Sheffield? What drew you there? Well, you know, I've I've met some folks in Sheffield a long time ago, back in 2016, when I worked uh, in economic development. And we met at a real estate investment conference where both cities were trying to find ways to to make a splash of their their small cities among these giants and i was just drawn to some of the people that i met because it just felt like they were like edmontonians in spirit like they were trying to make a difference in their city they're really passionate about their city they're smart people and so we kind of kept in touch um and we've been working on this idea that that i came up with back then around creating a network of small up and coming cities that are really unique and and can win together and places where people can really be somebody, not like a New York or an LA or places that are already established. And so we kind of kept in touch over that. They came to Edmonton once, I went to Sheffield once. And um, in the pandemic, two of them, so Alexis Karachi and uh, Louisa Harrison Walker, they ended up taking over their chamber of commerce. And uh-huh. they have some ambitious you know, sites and uh, for Sheffield, and they wanted to have an international person on their board. And so oddly, I joined the board of their Uh chamber of commerce. And um, so I've been doing that virtually, but I needed an excuse to get out of the country for a little bit because I was just having traveled overseas since before the pandemic. So I thought this is a good way to go back to Sheffield, hang out with some friends, but also just have really cool conversations and, you know, do a little bit of that. So that's why I was there. Amazing. I, yet another thing I did not know about you. Um, <laughs> you you posted on LinkedIn that you, you see a lot of parallels between Sheffield and Edmonton. Obviously, what you mentioned about kind of being a place that's big enough for things to be happening, but small enough that anybody can do them, I guess. What other yeah. connections do you see? Well, I think, you know, it's it's weird to me how similar the two cities are. So it goes all the way from like the landscape. So Sheffield, half of Sheffield is in a national park. And so outdoor living is a really big part of their lifestyle, like it is here with our River Valley. Um, it's a small enough city, like you said, where where you can know everybody, but you can also make things happen. But they're an extremely young city. They've got a couple of great universities there. So they have a really young and dynamic population. And they used to be very industrial. So cutlery was actually invented in Sheffield. It's a steel uh-huh. city. And similar to us, they're going through this renaissance where they're really tapping into like creative industries or high tech industries. And so recently they've attracted a couple of big names to an advanced manufacturing park that they created. So they've, they're home to Boeing, uh, McLaren and Rolls Royce in the, on the R and D arms of their business. And so there's like this new, there, there's, there's this emerging high tech advanced manufacturing very um, forward thinking population, but it kind of comes up from this industrious roll up your sleeves, build it kind of mentality, which we have here. Yeah. And then finally, what I thought was really interesting too, is 
not only are they creative and entrepreneurial, but they're full of small business. So yes, they want to attract a couple of these big companies, but about 95% of their city is small and medium-sized businesses like ours. And mm-hmm. so of course, magical things happen when you put a bunch of entrepreneurs in a city. Um, and especially on things like social issues, they care a lot about their downtown, about their people, about the climate, uh, things like that. So I just feel like there's endless parallels. And the final one, because I can ramble about these (laughs) all day long, the final one is probably the most important. They have an amazing cafe culture, some of the best coffee Uh I've tasted, and they are the brewing capital of the UK. And Uh I mean, what what better way to connect than over coffee and beer? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, we'll link in the show notes to the the story that Faiza shared on on LinkedIn, so you can see more of what she's talking about. Um, I think that kind of connection making that you just did there is really emblematic of lifelong learners, which I think you are one. And that idea of always learning is maybe a good segue into our interview this week. So I had a chance to talk to Jennifer Schaefer of. Onlia Enterprises, which is aiming to build the next generation of accessible online learning solutions and digital knowledge applications. She recently received the Emerging Entrepreneur Award from Alberta Women Entrepreneurs, but as you'll hear in our conversation, she has been at this for a long time and is still always learning. Here's my conversation with Jennifer Schaefer of Onlia. Welcome to Bloom. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm totally excited to be here. Awesome. So it occurs to me that you were into online learning long before the pandemic made all of us into online learning. And so before we even talk about your business, tell me what attracted you to the field? Uh, That's a great question. I actually had my first startup uh, almost 25 years ago now. Um, It was out of New York City, where I lived at the time, and it was completely virtual. Um, I had uh, partners that were across the United States and one very important one in Canada. And uh, what we did, it was called News Trolls back before the word trolls was so negative. (laughs) (laughs) We were using some of the first generation XML and hyperlinking capabilities to show the differences between what some media sources were talking about for the pieces they put online and what other uh, things coming out of the academic institutions and centers and institutes were saying about the same thing. So it was very nascent early online virtual uh, media. This was before the word blog, before before New York Times had a digital division. Um, So I've always been really uh, obsessed with how do we acquire knowledge? Um, how do we master learning of a topic? Um, my own background is as a creative technologist. I learned to code as a very young person, just simple stuff using books that would teach you how to build games. Right. Uh, TI-99-4A, if you can believe that. <laughs> and a tape recorder. And you had to actually listen for the difference in the code changes, which wasn't wow. different for me because I was also a musician. And uh, I think folks forget how closely aligned the musical arts are to computing science when you get down to what we were doing in the the 1980s. So, you know, acquiring knowledge, understanding how to master a knowledge set and sharing knowledge and teaching others has kind of been just who I am since basically I was 11 years old. Wow. I had no idea about that. Yeah. (laughs) 
Okay, well, fast forward then. So tell me about the the origins of Onlia. How and why did it start? Okay, so um, Onlia started first um, as an idea. And the idea came out of a specific success I had when I was uh, running the University of Alberta's first university digital strategy division. Um, I was the co-chair of a committee that was looking at how we could apply digital strategy to interactive online learning. Uh, so it was a co-chair. I was in administration, but I had uh, a co-chair that was academic, and the and the committee was a group of academics and administrative folk and some industry uh, uh, folks chiming in here and there. Through that, um, we started playing around with creating the first massive open online course for the University of Alberta out of my university digital strategy unit. So my unit, my team there were actually the um, producers, the creative technologists, writers, editors, um, audio, video, etc., for what we were producing. And the content experts, obviously, were professors. Uh, so it was called Dino 101. It became very famous for a number of reasons, um, but probably the one that created the inception of Onlia was in April 2014, I attended the, co the Coursera conference in London. I was speaking at it, and I was speaking with a couple of other folks who were really ahead of the game um, from other countries uh, around how do you... How do you actually do something with these? You know, it's one thing to open them up and give them to everybody, and that's noble and awesome. But what else can you do with them? And so the reason that uh, people were really looking at what we had done for the University of Alberta uh, when we were still all part of one community was because we had we had broken a very difficult statistic. The statistic was for free offerings for online learning, only you only had about five percent complete completion mm -hmm. rate which is obviously a problem. If you're going to invest in a high quality learning product and you only have 5% completion, you're, you know, what do you do with that? Yeah. We had increased it up to almost 20% while still offering it for free. And it's very different when people start paying. I mean, then they're, sure. then they're engaged because their wallet's engaged, right? Yeah. This was early days. This was 2014. So we, um, myself specifically, presented the findings of how we did what we did and why what we did was the right thing for honoring um, a student's attention, honoring a student's ability to complete, and also honoring a student's ability to engage, not force them to do something boring just because you had this wonderful university name behind you, right? And right. oh, well, you want the course? So, you know, suck it up, sit in the lecture, take notes, be bored, right? And yeah. that's not how I roll. So that uh, kind of exploded where everyone's like, what do you mean they got 20%? None of us have. And by none of us, I meant MIT and Harvard and Yale, and, you know, all these places that weren't getting that when they did the free online stuff. So three months later is when we actually created the not-for-profit with University of Alberta as sort of the anchor because it's a not-for-profit university creating a not-for-profit of Onlia. Um, so that was the inception of the new company, Onlia. Um, and it was a not-for-profit until uh, 2020. So we've had two, two uh, complete fiscal years now as a for-profit. And um, so we are a startup, but we have a consistent history that sort of ramped us into the place to become a for-profit now, now in our third year. Right. So then, so what was the reasoning behind wanting to spin it out into a for-profit company? 
Uh, a couple of reasons. Um, it, mostly it was because we had a lot of um, ideas that we wanted to go further in. And we wanted to be able to have the flexibility to build the company far beyond the sort of needs of just University of Alberta and its needs for high quality digital learning, which, of course, it has heavily invested in. Our client base was diversifying rapidly, even when we were a nonprofit. So we have a number of levels of government that uh, work with us. We have a lot of different kinds of associations. And of course, universities and colleges and polytechs all over Canada, the United States, and a few now in Europe as well. So it was the right time to uh, explore that. And uh, we worked with the University of Alberta closely in how we, as the founders, so um, I am a founder, obviously, and it sort of came out of the original uh, team that I built back when we were a unit. Uh, but I also have two co-founders, very important, that, that family of co-founders, I feel. So one is literally family, my husband, uh, Jonathan Schaefer, who is an AI researcher uh, and a professor at the University of Alberta. And um, our CEO is also a co-founder with us, Adriana Lopez Forero, who was originally in Anlia as a program manager for Indigenous Canada Massive Open Online course that we produced for the University of Alberta and their Faculty of Native Studies. And so the three of us as co-founders, um, basically, there's a valuation done, and we bought the company from University of Alberta. So we're in a five-year cycle. Uh, we're in our third, yeah, our third year of paying back to them on that. But uh, we've bootstrapped ourselves. So we did this with our own passion. We knew that we would could make it a lot bigger. And uh, in our two years, we have um, grown by over fifty percent. So wow. it's working, and we're going to yeah. keep going. So you mentioned some of your customers, they're, they're institutional customers. Are they hiring you just for MOOCs or are they also hiring you to help them with other kinds of online learning? Initially, it was MOOCs, which was very closely followed by, but how do we monetize MOOCs? Because right. we want to do things not just for free and open reasons. And so we used with a lot of our customers the same model that I had proposed for U of A, which they use now and still do, uh, which is some of the course content can be free to everybody. And then some of it can be uh, just a completely asynchronous online uh, course for credit to U of A students. And so they pay the regular for credit tuition price for that. And then some of it can be used as sort of a um, online textbook to a more disciplined and focused and interactive session that the professor has on campus. So a hybrid model. And actually, I mean, U of A, I don't think gives themselves credit for this, but they kind of were doing hybrid before anybody else either because they were using their own online learning assets. And this is pre-pandemic with the classroom experience and sort of having a differentiator there. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we, we don't just do uh, services. That's how we started services in like full online learning production. We now have two other areas of work that we do that kind of came out of that work. One is called LX labs. So LX labs is when even an individual expert in something, so it can be business to consumer as far as we help a, a single person all the way to the large institutions, they need a whole digital strategy around what they want to share online or in their own classroom. So some of the clients we have are doing things um, very specifically for 
a certain audience. So for instance, we're working with the Alberta Real Estate, uh, Real Estate Association right now on their entire pre-licensing program. Uh, that's for realtors in Alberta. So very specific, uh, very based in, you know, they get together and work on it together or they, or they also work um, separately. But then, you know, we also provide interactives for some of the big platforms for their clients themselves. So one of the big uh, pieces of work we're doing right now is for Coursera, which is one of the platforms for one of their big customers, Google, and that is um, interactive plugins in 11 different global languages for an IT specialization, a Google IT specialization. Uh -huh. so we fit into the platform play. We also fit into, uh, and this is probably an area I'm most excited about, uh, we call it uh, Project Kind right now because it's still in beta. It's gone through alpha and it has some really good outcomes in alpha. And what it is, is Kind stands for Knowledge Index. So you see how we kind of take words and make them yes. <laughs> on Leah, online learning, Kind, Knowledge Index. And um, there we're using the expertise of uh, one of our founders, uh, Dr. Jonathan Schaefer, um, whose specialization in career history has been in uh, search algorithm optimization that's used in GPS and used in many different kinds of search technologies globally today. And specifically, the knowledge index or kind, as we call it, is to understand data through searching fine visualization in ways that current search tools just don't do it. And so we use uh, natural language processing and AI to do that. Now, that actually came out. It's a, an adjacent possible product that came out of the production work we do for all these different clients in that once they built this sort of digital ecosystem of whatever they wanted to teach for whatever opened, open and global to small and specific audiences, this ability for the student within that to pull out the pieces of information across a variety of data sets and curate it specifically for them, that's where the idea for Project Kind came out of. But it also came out of our own, as three founders and members of our team too, our frustration about Google search, right? And our right. frustration about when you are kind of a polymath by nature and you love to read and study and listen to podcasts and watch videos and everything. But then you're like, oh yeah, where did I see that? Mm. You can't use Google to say, where did Karen read that bit about that thing that day one time? Uh, yeah. Maybe she was having a lemonade, right? And so, <laughs> and so that AI product that we're working on right now is something that uh, we're really excited about. Wow. That's amazing. Who are your um, competitors in this field? You know, it's interesting. I actually thought, much like when you watch a movie and you see a whole bunch of different studios at the end of the movie in the credits, because each of them have very specific things they do really well. And sometimes those are patentable. So they do a very specific thing around your CGI backgrounds or a very specific thing around the way the costuming works or something like that. Like a movie studio, like a bespoke specific movie studio. So I hire on Leah when I want this level quality. I go to this other creative studio if I want something different, whatever. And while there are some, um, there's not a lot of big ones. And those that went big, it's more like they're kind of the arms of some of the platform companies. Because mm -hmm. when you go to one of the platform companies, so here I'm talking about uh, D2L or some of the providers of the Moodle platform or um, Canvas, the clients will come and then they'll want to put their stuff on the platform and they'll realize they don't actually have it 
together in any kind of way that makes it competitive to other courses or learning in the same space. And so that's, for instance, I think describes a lot of the kind of work we do with Coursera is we are hired by Coursera to help some of their other clients make their learning interactives uh, much more competitive to the audiences out there. There's some creative production studios out there for sure, but there's not a lot of like real competition to what we're doing. And I think that's in particular because now that we have found our footing as a for-profit, we see ourselves very anchored in LX Labs, the production work, and uh, Kind, our AI natural language processing product. It feels like your timing was off, also like amazing uh, at Onlia because you spun off into for-profit world just before the pandemic. Um, is that right? Is that timing right? Yeah, yeah, the timing. That timing is about right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like a lot more people experienced online learning during the pandemic and a lot of people's experiences were not great. What what needs to happen to make online learning universally better? The first word that comes to my mind about that question is respect. Mm. Respect for the human on the other side who's watching or listening or trying to learn. We don't respect our learners. We expect our learners to keep up, to to get an A, to get yeah. the points you need. It's an ugly thing, really. Now, that's a very philosophical statement. Practically, it's that just because you can deliver something online, as interesting as, as my room might be, you do not want to listen to me talk at you on this tiny little screen for an hour. Right. That's not online learning. That's the same kind of sage on a stage. We just put the sage on a virtual stage. And yet we have all these things around us that teach us how we're actually learning. I get a lot of my inspiration from watching um, my son and having watched my son who's 16 now. How does he learn? Like, I'm always curious about how are people learning? How do I learn when I don't know how to do something really strange, you know, related to my house plumbing? Yeah. You know, I'm going on YouTube. I'm listening to some expert. I'm, I'm, I do all these different things. And so do other learners. But we don't allow um, that kind of connectivist is, is what it's called in some areas of um, the pedagogy. We don't allow that kind of connectivism to happen naturally unless we're doing it organically through sharing a meal together and having a bunch of people who might have a bunch of startups get together and talk, right? And those kinds of things. The thing that I like to tell people about online learning is what are you doing to respect your learner, to respect their time, to respect how they can actually master the topic rather than just sort of feel like I'll cram it in and then I hope I get, you know, as high marks as possible on the unit exam or something like that. And how do you use what are really good storytelling capabilities? So how do you use audio? How do you use video? How do you, in one frame, layer a whole bunch of information? Like the way I'm looking at you now, and I'm curious about your lamp. And I'm thinking, is that arts and crafts or not? You know, and I'm, I'm looking at the pictures in the bookshelf. Like We have so many uh, ways that we process knowledge as humans very, very quickly. It's, it's incredible. And yet we don't use those basics it's how we work in the online learning creation itself. We get too tied to what are the learning outcomes? And of course you have to have them, but we don't talk about the art of the journey to get there. I think a lot of it too is 
Um, think about what it takes to master a hands-on craft, whether that is uh, learning to play an instrument or knitting or learning to be a boilermaker. There's a lot of hands-on work you need to do. And the way we try and fail effortlessly when we're trying to learn a, a, a hands-on craft is kind of, if, we, if you just look at that and you think about, well, how would I apply that in you know, mastering spectrometry, which is an, right. an application we've built. That's the kind of thinking you need to have uh, so that it becomes something that no matter where you are, you can start to really work with the material. And I think we, because a computer is a two-dimensional object, and even when you go into virtual space, which has some some really cool things I think we can grow into, but we think of it as a two-way relationship, but we don't really break the what's it called in acting the, the third the wall fourth wall fourth wall somebody's yeah. wall yeah we don't break the fourth <laughs> wall right and you know yeah. my favorite composer is Kurt Weil and, and the work that he did with Bertolt Brecht was all about breaking the fourth wall and having this gorgeous beautiful music but these people dealing with very ugly human realities on the stage. And so that kind of juxtaposition too, and the way you can play with the assumed and the expected and make it unexpected is also something that I would suggest to anyone, you know, trying to build sort of their own digital strategy and online learning, whether they're an institution or an individual. Um, It's actually still, in my opinion, green fields. There's so much we can do in the space that we're not doing yet. You're clearly so passionate about this, but you have a day job. You you work at Athabasca University in a senior role in in information technology. Yes. Uh, Adriana is your CEO at Onlea, but still, like, how do you juggle this? Okay, well, that's a great question because I, I think a lot of founders have these questions. It's like, what? How do you do this? So. One of the things is in my personal work, I am, and personal means whatever work, whether it's on LEA or my personal um, or boards I sit on or universities that I'm a part of, I'm, I feel that I'm still really learning about the ecosystem of what it could be. So that when the day comes and somebody says, how do we build a university from scratch that's better? I'm going to be the person saying, I, I figured this one out. Um, that said, uh, very explicitly, I am not involved in the day-to-day operations. So yes, we have an executive, a chief executive officer. We have a good uh, leadership team that reports up to Adriana and they are running the operations of the company. I'm on the board, uh, as are the other two co-founders. And we meet every two weeks on Sunday, usually for about three to four hours. uh, And we go through all of the strategic pieces of the business and the things that we need to do in that space. It doesn't uh, directly impact, you know, the hours that I have to put in, which are quite lengthy, to the incredible role that I've had uh, working on the digital transformation of Athabasca University for the past five years. My heart is in Alberta. I've lived here over 15 years. And having started the digital strategy for University of Alberta, and then having started with the incredible team of folks there at Athabasca University, the digital transformation and moving the entire operations to the cloud, and the research computing to the cloud there, these things are all part of the greater ecosystem of how much better we can be in providing accessible and affordable education to every single Canadian. I would like that to be part of Brand Canada, that if you're a Canadian citizen or permanent resident or on your way to being either of those, um, that you have access to all kinds of higher education from micro to macro 
at prices that are either supported by our governments because they want us to have more learning and be more productive in general, or that are very low cost. So all parts of that, whether it is um, the, as a founder of Onlea or my my role at Athabasca University, my role sitting on different boards that I'm on, these all matter to me and are a part of that bigger equation that I believe passionately in. I think ultimately I'm an immigrant myself to Canada, so I'm a dual citizen. Uh, I came from U.S. to Canada in around, um, gosh, it goes back a ways now, uh, 2005, <laughs> 2006-ish. And uh, I'm passionate about doing everything I can to with the skills that I had uh, gained on Wall Street and, and the work that I did in the financial institutional financial sector and bring it to bear here in Western Canada. And I've been just thrilled to see what we've grown so far, but there's so much more we can do across the West. And I'm excited to be a part of that. Is there something about Edmonton itself that's made a good place for you to make that dream come true? Yes. Um, Edmonton is an amazing city. Like I said, I've lived here uh, around 15 years now. And one of the things you do when you live most of your early life in um, New York City is you understand how important K through 12 education is for if you're going to have a family to the point that you're actually thinking, you know, 10 years before you're even ready to have a child, where am I living? Because I want to make sure I can get my child into that uh, school system, unless you happen to be fortunately very wealthy, and then you can go private. But most of us aren't like that. Yeah. I was pregnant with my son in New York City, and I did a, a deep analysis because that's one thing I did as, as a senior uh, kind of digital and product person in, in uh, institutional finance. Did a deep analysis on where the best place to raise a child would be over the next 25 years for a number of reasons. So environmental factors, political factors, all sorts of things. And most importantly, though, uh, as far as the weighting of the things I looked at was the K through 12 system. So while it's taken a bit of a beating in the more recent uh, five years, I would say, uh, the, K, the public K through 12 system in Alberta has been so good for so long that it's actually ranked separately than, you know, Canada, right? Uh, and it's been in the top five. And you could see that in the data in New York City before I even immigrated to, to Canada. So I think that Edmonton public school system is something that I'm just thrilled with on every single level. And my son has been in it um, since the beginning. Uh, so education for my child was a big draw to Edmonton specifically. Also, uh, healthcare and innovation in healthcare in the hospitals here in Edmonton was a big draw. The affordable housing was amazing. Um, I originally came in into Vancouver. It was my first couple of years working there. And that had already kind of become too pricey. And then what's, what's kept me here has been, first of all, the magical summers that we tend to not tell people about, but also <laughs> the brilliant winters. And by brilliant, I mean, yeah, it's freaking cold. And I found out how your eyelashes freeze onto your face a couple of times, <laughs> but the reality is it's so sunny in the winter that it's just like this pop of like white and blue. And it's very invigorating to doing deep work, I find. Uh, finally, I would say the education, the broad education level and interest and, and just curiosity of people that are here in Edmonton 
I can't put my finger on why exactly. I know um, that it's not just because of our um, our universities and colleges here, but it's also, I think, because so many people, once they come here, they really get involved in so many aspects of the city and so many aspects of the province. And together, that just creates this glue of like just a super interesting place to be. Uh, so when people say, how did you move from New York City to Edmonton? Oh, my God, you met Edmonton. I'm like, are you kidding? Like, oh, keep saying that. And meanwhile, I'm very happy here. So <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Edmonton and Alberta. <laughs> Uh, that's, uh, you, you should get a gig with, uh, Winter Cities Edmonton or, or some of those guys there. That's a very, uh, uh, passionate defense. Um, I, my last question is for you is like, what's next for on Leah? So you, you've teased that a little bit with kind and, and sort of the ongoing integration of, uh, AI and natural language processing. What else is next? So I have a, a few that are just completed and a few that are on the hopper that I wanted to talk about. So just completed and it kind of shows you all the different stuff we're doing and why it's so fun to work for us. So I'll, I'll have a plug for that in a minute sure. too. But, um, so for Ontario Centennial College, we've uh, just completed the interactive media management program. So there's a college program there. Uh, for Callisto, which actually was a support from the government of Canada, as well as Cybera and um, PIMS, which is the Math Institute, uh, we've just released computational thinking and data analysis training for school teachers uh, for Callisto. For the Coaches Association of Canada, recently released anti-racism in coaching learning that they're giving for their coaches. For the Métis Nation of Alberta, in this past year, we released the opioid awareness community-based naloxone training that they're using in their communities. For York University, so again in Ontario, um, Lassonde Edge, which is their school of engineering and how to sort of get yourself all ready for that. And then... Um, We've also been doing, I think, and this is, I think this is another real result of post-COVID realities, a lot more work now with healthcare. So one product that's uh, just come out is by the Sherwood Park Primary Care Network, and it's hybrid classrooms and patient care. So mm -hmm. it's learning that they're using again internally for their folks, but um, it kind of shows you a whole bunch of really interesting ways that online learning is growing in all these different pockets since the pandemic. Um, what we're about to complete, other than some of the things I talked about earlier in the interview, is a very cool energy transition in the 21st century MOOC. And this is for the Canadian Society for Unconventional Resources, which is a consortium of, of government industry and um, universities. For the College of Physicians and Surgeons in British Columbia, helping them just set up their whole LMS and then their practice standard courses. So we're LMS agnostic, agnostic sorry, learning management system agnostic or platform agnostic. We've worked with all of them. And so we can help people when they need that piece of it, too. And then a uh, very cool product uh, for the Peter Lougheed College of the University of Alberta, which is their, in their leadership program, Inspired to Dream. Uh, so those are the things, some things that are coming up and are about to complete. Well, do send me the links and we'll uh, link to those in the show notes so people can, can share those or, or t check those out. Thank you so much. This has been a very inspiring conversation. Oh, thank you. And and thank you for having me. I kind of feel like we're, we're all excited at on because We're like, oh my God, we get to be on Karen's podcast. So we're
So one of the threads that I wanted to pull on from that conversation is that idea of respect for the online learner. This is something that I personally have felt missing from every learning management system that I ever dealt with when I taught at various places as an instructor. I didn't see a lot of respect for the online learner when my kids were in online school during the the pandemic. Did that resonate with you as well? You know, it's funny. I never thought about it until Jennifer mentioned it. And then it became so obvious. You know, a lot of learning is, or I guess a lot of online learning is taking something that happens, you know, in a conversational and interactive form and then trying to just move it to this you know, one way or, or flatter, um, environment. Yeah. So I never thought about that, but it makes so much sense. And uh, I can imagine that there's even thinking about the clients that Onlia works with, I can see how that would be so important uh, to some of those people. Mm -hmm. I also thought that, uh, speaking of pattern seeking and connection noticing, we've talked to so many companies so far uh, on Bloom who got their start at, at the University of Alberta. So I'm thinking of Copperstone Technologies, G2V Optics, Future Fields, last week uh, when you were away, Zero Point Cryogenics, and now on Leah kind of shows the contribution that a university can make to an entrepreneurial ecosystem. What do you think? I 100% agree. I think we're so lucky. Part of the reason we probably have so many um, entrepreneurs in so many different fields is because of the types of universities that we have here. Like, yes, we have the powerhouse research university and, and everything that the U of A has to offer, but then we've also got McEwen and we've got Nate with, with all the polytechnic expertise they have. So I do think anything that encourages learning and learning to learn um, mm -hmm. and then also skill building. If you can combine those, I definitely think you need that to, to foster some sort of entrepreneurial spirit. I think that there's a ways to go in how we make that a bit more fair to the entrepreneur. Like I know there's, you know, obviously things we can do when it comes to, uh, where the IP resides when you come up with something at a university, but just the fact that we have like young learning energy in our city at all times, I think is incredible. It also made me think, okay, a lot of these people started out in this taxpayer, partially taxpayer intuition supported place to get started. And then they spin off. It's it's like, it's hard to, to figure out what the balance sheet of who, making sure that everybody's paying their fair share on that. But yeah, a, a discussion for another day. <laughs> uh, you heard Jennifer extol the virtues of Edmonton. And then after we stopped recording, she mentioned the, the, how impressed she is as a kind of an outsider. She's lived here for 15 years, but from coming from away about the quality of the talent that she can recruit here. And she added that even though a lot of Anlia's staff is like they work remotely, it's really important to her to have a presence in downtown Edmonton. They're based in the Melton building on Jasper Avenue and 103rd. They're very happy there. And I just wanted to to mention that because we've heard a lot from the business community, the downtown business community about how bad downtown is. And I thought it was refreshing to hear a former New Yorker be so enthusiastic about it. Yeah, I mean, it, it is sad that it's so obvious when you go downtown Edmonton that people are suffering. Um, but I mean, we're a city. And if you look at the state of the world, and having just come back from another city, it's like this everywhere. And I don't think that that's 
reassuring. I think rather it's more telling of the work that needs to be done to really repair things after the pandemic, right? And in any way that we can contribute to that, <clears throat> we should. So I think sometimes the reason we feel like, oh, downtown's so bad is because it's the only exposure we have to what is really going on with people who yeah. aren't in the same position as us. Yeah. And so while it's very uncomfortable and a really sad reminder, it's critical because, you know, even today I saw on LinkedIn, all these restaurants that are for sale in downtown Edmonton that have closed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you drive downtown, yes, you feel a lot more unsafe, but it's because of a lot of reasons. And so I think the fact that Onlia is keeping their office downtown, if we can see more restaurants open, if we can support those in some way and choose to go downtown a little bit more, I think that will help. And, uh, you know, I remember in the summertime when I went downtown for uh, AI week, it felt like a whole new place because there was right. so much vibrancy with all the people. And we just, we just need to get back to that. And it's going to take time. And I think we're moving in the right direction. But it is nice to hear uh, Jennifer talk about Edmonton in, in such a positive way. I think yeah. as Edmontonians, we're very hard on ourselves and we're, mm -hmm. we're often unfair about this city and we don't, we, we shouldn't be. <laughs> Well, well said. Um, Anlia is hiring right now. So if that made you want to work for them, we'll put a link uh, in the show notes along with everything else that we mentioned along the way. We'll take a break now to hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll check in with some other entrepreneurs who have recently earned some recognition. Bloom is brought to you by Edmonton Unlimited. Here's a message from our sponsor. Edmonton Startup Week is a celebration of innovation culture, free community-led events, launch party, and more. I'm Catherine. Please join me October 17th to 22nd. Register now at edmontonstartupweek.com. This episode of Bloom is also brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. Alberta Blue Cross understands that running a small business is tough, and they understand that business owners in Alberta are busy. Let Alberta Blue Cross give you peace of mind with a group benefit plan. They offer health, dental, life, and disability coverage for your employees. Alberta Blue Cross group benefit plans are easy to manage anywhere, anytime, and on any device, making it easy for you and your employees to access. To learn more and explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. So we've talked before about the AWE Awards from Alberta Women Entrepreneurs. They recognized Jennifer Schaefer last month and also Vanessa Marshall from Jack 59, the sustainable beauty business. And I see that Vanessa has also made it through to the finals of Pow Wow Pitch, which is a North America wide event for Indigenous entrepreneurs. It's been a pretty great year for her. Yeah, it has. That That's amazing. And congratulations, Vanessa. I think, uh, again, you know, it's so cool to see all these different businesses coming up. But I think if you can combine anything with sustainability, that's always another big win because it's not the easiest way to build a business. So I always commend anybody that's doing it. Yeah, for sure. The other Edmontonian in Powell Pitch or in the Powell Pitch finals is Jackie Takoto Gill, who made it through uh, in the nonprofit category for Kokum's Helper Society, which uh, she's founded and is looking to build a facility to provide hospice care for Indigenous people. 
Brett McKay wrote a story about her for Taproot that we'll link to. And I just, I love her idea. And it also sounds from her, her interview with Brett, like she's approaching this with a big heart, but also a business brain. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a great business and a great idea, um, especially thinking about, you know, at that stage in life, how important it is to be surrounded by your community and to feel like you still belong somewhere and are being cared for in a really, really human way. Uh, so I think that's amazing. Yeah. Just reading her interview it remi- reminded me of conversations I've had with Jane Bisbee from the Social Enterprise Fund. And and she makes it very clear that just because you're in social enterprise, just because you're a non not for profit, that you still need to bring more money in than you spend. And and I feel like Jackie's got that sense as well that she'll she'll find the money and find the sustainability to I hope make her dream come true. Yeah, that's why I love the term social enterprise and social venture. I feel like from a mindset perspective, it just puts you in this place that. Just because it's some an idea that's doing good doesn't mean it has to be unprofitable or unsuccessful in that way. If, mm-hmm. if anything, it's probably more important that it yeah. is able to stand on its own two feet. Yeah. And finally, I see that someone named Faiza Ramji won a Made in Alberta uh, award for field notes. What What is up with that? Yeah, that's, um, it's really exciting. It's super exciting. As somebody who, you know, you know this, Karen, it's really tough to put yourself out there when you start a business and it's tough not to take everything personally. Um, and so we applied for a Made in Alberta award and we were, we won the best alcoholic beverage category, which I think, um, for me is, is amazing because I, I don't come from this world and there are so many great companies putting out products in this category in Alberta. So, uh, that's a huge win for us. We're, we're just really excited. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things where it's like awards are encouraging and they're not everything, but they are really encouraging. And, you know, in this tough entrepreneurial world, you kind of need those once in a while to keep you going. So we're really happy about it. Little bit, a little bit of fuel for the engine definitely helps. Yeah. Congratulations. We look forward to seeing what comes next. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this week. If you haven't already, hit subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes of Bloom. And if you like this episode, share it with a friend. Bloom is produced by Taproot Edmonton with editing by Castria. Our music is by David Von Beeker. And our cover art is by Vicky Wersinski. Bye.